Hello, my name is Ian Palazzola, the executive chef of Frosca Food and Wine, and you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we speak with chefs and writers about their favorite ingredients. And then we talk to the producer of that ingredient to learn its history, how it's made, and why chefs love using it in their kitchens. We have a delicious episode today, Mm. Andrea. We are going to be talking about Pecorino Romano cheese. A cheese that's really having a moment right now. It really is. We're going to be talking with Chef Ian Palazzola of Frosca Restaurant in Boulder, Colorado. This is our first Colorado chef that we've had on. And this restaurant, Frosca, has been around for a while, but it is absolutely, when you talk about the Rocky Mountains, if you go to Colorado, that's where you got to eat. It is possibly the best restaurant, Italian restaurant in the Rocky Mountains. And we then have a very special guest joining us. It's Pierre Luigi Sini of Sini Fulvi Pecorino Romano in Rome, Italy, probably the greatest Pecorino Romano producer Hands in history down. and still running strong today. I think they started in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when it comes to Pecorino Romano, there's nobody better in the business. Absolutely. I think chefs, they order it by name. If you go to any of the great Italian markets, you're going to find the full V Pecorino Romano cheese. Yeah. I And you talk about Pecorino is having, you mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. it's having a moment now. Totally. I mean, when you talk about Roman cuisine and all, you know, if it, I don't know if it's just like social media between TikTok and Instagram yep. with like people making carbonara mm-hmm. or making uh, cacio e pepe, but it's like these. But doesn't like pasta? Pasta makes me feel good. Yeah. Like, for me, it is like if I'm having a bad day, if I want comfort food, I want a big creamy bowl of pasta. I'm with you. So we are going to talk all about pecorino romano on Ingredient Insiders. Yum. This season of Ingredient Insiders is brought to you by Bazzini Nuts. Bazzini is the brand of choice among chefs in the finest hotels and restaurants. Their legacy of quality extends to gourmet retail stores, specialty boutiques, grocery distributors, and delis, ensuring you have access to their extensive range of consumer retail packages. It all started in 1886 when Italian immigrant Anthony L. Bazzini began selling nuts by the pound to bakers, street vendors, and individuals during the Great Depression. But Bazzini Nuts isn't just about peanuts. They offer a delightful array of nuts like cashews, almonds, pecans, pistachios, hazelnuts, and more. Plus, a tempting selection of dried fruit, including apricots, cranberries, figs, dates, prunes, and tomatoes. So whether at the ballpark, in the kitchen, or indulging in some well-deserved self-care, choose Bazzini Nuts. With a legacy spanning 137 years, they're here to serve your needs with the same consistency, reliability, and quality, making them an iconic name in the world of nuts and dried fruits. Bazzini Nuts. Tradition, quality, and taste all in one. Taste the legacy today. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios in New York City. I am so stoked about today. The only thing that's not great about today's episode is that we're not in Colorado, but Chef Ian Palazzola from Frasca Restaurant is in Boulder, Colorado, one of my favorite towns in the entire world, one of the best places anybody could live. You used to live in Colorado, John. I did live in Colorado many years ago. I lived in Boulder, actually. During the summer of 1988, now wow. you know how old I am. Um, I was three. I lived on Pleasant Street in Boulder. And then I lived in Fort Collins, Colorado for a couple of years. And my Colorado is very near and dear to my heart. Ian, we're going to let you talk in a second, but I got more to say here. So <laughs> a very quick, funny story. About a sit month back, ago. Ian. You sit back. Relax. Everybody did. Yeah, there have, you a, go. <laughs> have a snifter of brandy. About a month ago, I was in Ojai, California at the Ojai Valley Inn Food and Wine Festival. And I met a woman named Erin Palmer, who works for the Frasca Restaurant Group, 
I know there's an official name, but I'm not saying that correctly. But Aaron uh, was working at an event that I was working on, and she she you know made this introduction to the event and was talking about Ingredient Insiders, and I was so flattered and honored. And she said, "Yeah, you know, I listened to a few episodes, and the you know some of the team at Frosca listens to it." And I said, "By we have to get the Frosca chefs on and the team from Frosca." So, Ian, we are so honored to have you here. You have the best restaurant in the Rocky Mountains. How did you? Are you from Colorado? No, no, I'm from uh, Roanoke, Virginia, a little small town in Southwest Virginia. Love it. Are you, did you, what, yeah, what brought you to Colorado? Yeah. must've been the skiing. Yeah. So it, it definitely was partially that growing up in uh, Southwest Virginia, you could travel into West Virginia there to go skiing. So always a big passion of mine. And then as I left Virginia, I went to culinary school in Atlanta, Georgia, and I met someone there who was in then moving to Aspen, Colorado. And I had always thought of the mountains, the sunniest state as a place I would really enjoy to visit, let alone live. So I took the leap and uh, moved to Aspen, Colorado and ended up working at the Little Nell. Andrea, I know you haven't been to the Little Nell. I have not. I don't know that I've ever been allowed to step foot in the Little Nell, but this is one of the most <laughs> beautiful hotels in the world. It's at the base of Aspen Mountain. Is it called Ajax? Am I saying that right? It is. Ajax, yeah. And it's spectacular. And I can only imagine... What happens on those mornings when at night it's been snowing all night, there's a foot of fresh powder on the ground, the sun is shining at 6 a.m.? Do, do the cooks and the dishwashers call in sick? Like, what? how do you manage that? Because you know yeah. a lot of people are out there in that life because they love the skiing and snowboarding. Are you bringing your skis or snowboard to work? Or, or do you do, you make a few turns in the morning and then show up to work? Yeah. Exactly. We, we could even start it earlier in the night. So as the, every, everyone's starting to get off that night, you start seeing the, everything going around. People are saying it's starting to snow. It's starting to snow. It's a very uh, fun town. So lots of people like to go out after work. Uh, you, the town shuts down. No one goes out. Everyone goes home, tucks themselves in bed and gets ready for the next day. What's fun about the Little Nell, especially it's the only ski and ski out of resort that is in Aspen. So you could literally get to work, hit a couple runs, get into, get in there, change. And then also if you're the morning, a lot of times you would get given that early out where you could hit the last runs on the mountain as well. And same, if you're the nighttime cooks, you're trying to wake up in the morning, get to the mountain as early as you can, hit as many runs as you can before you go right into work. Wow. Fantastic. I, I remember when Frasca opened, I want to say, what, what year was that? 2009, 2004. It's going on to oh, 20 God. years. Yeah. So next wow. year is our big 20th celebration. Congratulations to Frosca. I know you guys Thank got you. Yeah, a Michelin star. Am I saying that correct? You do. You are. You are. Yeah. So, you it's know, wherever but... Ian goes, stars start showing up, Andrea. <laughs> it's a trend. Unbelievable. I really feel that that restaurant elevated the entire Colorado dining scene. You know, my memory was Boulder had the Flagstaff House, which was this really 100%. traditional, wonderful restaurant. Um, but when Frasca opened, it really was a game changer for for not just Boulder, but I think the entire mountain region. Um, tell us a little bit about the Frasca Restaurant Group because you mentioned Tavernetta. What are the what are all the restaurants in the group? And I always love to go back to the beginning of Frasca, but I always love Bobby tells a story that basically in San Francisco. You know, some of his friends thought he was a little crazy moving to a small Boulder, Colorado, opening a restaurant inspired by a very obscure region of Italy, Friuli Venezia Giulia, that no one at that point had really heard of. Um, and now what's already hard for any restaurant to do, you know, 20 years later, being a successful fine dining restaurant, it's really a testament to everyone who's worked for the group, which is, you know, over 20 years, you get lots of different people, each person being a steward of the restaurant. It's really amazing and really crazy and taking each next evolutionary step. And then within the Frosca Hospitality Group, you have Frosca, of course, Frosca Food and Wine, which is also co-joined. So we share, which is very unique. We share a back of the house area, the dish area and all the back hallways with now Pizzeria Alberico. So it's a pizza 
uh, Neapolitan style pizza and small bites. Really wonderful. Just went through a whole remodel. It's gorgeous. The food is awesome as well. And we really get to work with them on co-sourcing ingredients and all of that stuff. And it's really fun to have the different types of cooks and things all working together and learning from each other. And then you have in downtown Tavernetta, which is kind of like, I would call the most grand restaurant within the group, you know, large amounts of people every day, dining, super busy every day, a little more wide region focus point. So they can jump all over Italy, making all these wonderful things really inspired by a classic Taverna. And then you also have Sunday Vinyl, which is where my wife, Clara Klein, is the sommelier at. It's one of my favorite restaurants, but it's kind of kind of been the more loud. They play vinyl music. It was really inspired by Bobby's Sunday's classic restaurant tour, taking his day off and getting inspired to a restaurant. But him and his wife would listen to vinyls on Sundays and drink wine and just really enjoy their Sundays and thinking about how much people would enjoy that as well. So really fun, a little more... They, they actually have no Italian wine and then a um, little more inspired by the music, pair music to the, to the wine and the wine to the music and all of this fun stuff. Um, and then actually one of my really close friends who had also worked at Restaurant Eugene and Marad has been taking over as the executive chef there. So the food is going through a really fun evolution and truly changing their focus to be a, going in that next step. That's awesome. Let's jump into the heart of the conversation today. With a name like Palazzola, a beautiful Italian last name, we're here to talk about Pecorino Romano cheese today. And I feel like it's a cheese that kind of, you know, obviously it's been around hundreds of years, but it's, you know, with the popularity of cacio e pepe and Roman dishes. And I think, now tell me, Palazzola, what part of, you know, where is, where's your family from in Italy? Yeah, so we're from Rome, a little suburb outside of Rome. You know, I kind of grew up, my grandfather was an immigrant and he was also in the military. So as growing up, we didn't find out as much. They weren't as uh, open about all these stories. So it's all those 23andMe's and finding out Ancestry.com and diving into it more because he passed away when I was younger. So truly trying to find more out for through my dad and for myself, you know. Yeah, that's awesome. So you you have roots in the place where Pecorino Romano comes from. Exactly. Does it find its way into your cooking? Is it in, you know, is it is it being used at Frasca? Is it being used in, you know, at Tavernetta and some of the other restaurants in the group? 100%. I I would put it under the the top two cheeses from Italy for me and that in that section of Parmigiano Reggiano, it kind of gets hidden behind that but Pecorino Romano especially would be the cheese that we use. It's um, probably one of my favorite cheeses, obviously Cacio e Pepe being the highlight of that cheese, just physically being Pecorino Romano, black pepper, pasta, little pasta water. You know? is, is it me or like, I feel like Cacio e Pepe in the last five years oh, all yeah. of a sudden became a thing, right? I mean, it's been around forever. It's gotten a TikTok stardom, I think. <laughs> It ha- yeah right. It's it was it's so simple. You just mentioned it. Basically, three ingredients. It's what about it is so delicious. And you mentioned Parmigiano Reggiano. What are the differences between? I have so many questions now. Mm-hmm. What are the differences between Parmigiano Reggiano and Pecorino Romano? And also, Andrea, I'm curious. Do you use Pecorino Romano at home? Do you use you know Parmigiano? What? And Ian, tell us you know also at the restaurant. Like how are they used? Yeah, I mean, the difference, you know, mainly is the type of milk that's used to create the cheese, right? So mm-hmm. uh, Parmigiano Reggiano is a cow's milk cheese. Pecorino Romano is a sheep's milk cheese. Um, Pecorino is definitely going to be aged a little bit less. So it's it's slightly softer, grassier, um, stronger in its in its uh in its flavor salt and i think salty really comes to mind where parmigiano reggiano um i would almost say it's a little sweeter because it is aged longer and you are um you know getting those crystals and 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 whatnot from the aging process in my house we're a parmigiano reggiano house if i'm being perfectly honest um but you know there's always if you're doing cacio pepe pecorino is you know the star of the show ian what about you 
No, you nailed it. You told it exactly. And I, I found what was really unique with why Pecorino comes from that area is because back in the Roman times, that's what they had. So they produced lots of sheep. So the sheep's milk cheese was naturally what they had. And the reason it really stuck around is the Roman legionnaires would mm-hmm. uh, carry it around with them. So it was a high protein, high caloric, wouldn't go bad, something they could eat to keep themselves healthy, high salt content. Um, I'm a both. So I keep both cheeses at my house because I will use it for either or I'll, I'll looking for that nuttier, saltier aspect from that Parmesan. Like she said, the Parmesan mm-hmm. will be aged longer, more crystallized. You know, we used a, a Pecorino that's around that six month to one year aging. So you get a little softer, a little more meltability into it. So something like a duck ragu, I may use a Pecorino in there just to give a little more creaminess aspect. I love it. You know what I read, John? What'd you read, Andrea? I read this article that, um, you know, back in ancient Rome, they would age the cheese by burying it in the ground. You know, it keeps mm-hmm. it cold, like the fossa. temperature. Yep. Yep. And during COVID, when there was this surplus of pecorino, um, they were actually burying the cheese to preserve it. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. As soon as I, I literally, I typed in, Pecorino Romano just doing my research. And that was like the first article and a lot of things led back to it. So I think it definitely, uh, it's a cool story. I want to go back to Cacio e Pepe for a second. I actually will blend Parmigiano Reggiano and Pecorino Romano when I make it just for a little, I don't know. I was Is that in like a, a sin? I don't know, but I was in a competition. <laughs> Ian says yes. A little bit. Cheese, <laughs> traditionalists may say with so. Our, you know. our in-house cheese expert, Jennifer Sussman, challenged me to a Cacio e Pepe battle a couple of years ago. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to like pull out a couple of tricks. And I blended Parmigiano and Cacio e Pepe. And then my real secret was I took the most minuscule amount of freshly grated nutmeg and worked it in there oh. with the pepper. And the, needless the to say, I did, I did, like rolling I did, in yeah. their I, I did win the competition, though. <laughs> you did? Because I figured it was, you know, it's if you're just doing cheese and pepper, how are you going to separate yourself from the competitor? So I put something that maybe I thought the judges would think was a little weird. But what else besides Cacio Pepe? Like you've mentioned a, like a duck ragu. The duck ragu, yep. So what else? Yeah, we'll go. We'll try it actually with both. Side by side, we'll try different types of cheeses, which one emulsifies in better, which one's adding what we're looking for. Sometimes you want the cheese to hide in there, to not notice, just to add a creamier texture to it. You know, sometimes you really want the cheese to stand out. That's where I think sometimes Parmesan really highlights because you can use a 36-month aged parm, you know, and that's going to be salty. People are going to notice it faster. So like you were saying, your your Cacio Pepe probably won because people were noticing a little more nuanced tastes that probably add to the American palate as well, too. Will will restaurants serve Pecorino Romano just as a, you know, on a, as a table cheese, as a chunk of cheese, or is it just too sharp for that? You definitely can, but you're not going to see it as much as you are going to see like the aged hard Parmesans that are going to be yeah. more like Goudas and whatnot. Yeah. yeah, but what about like a Pecorino? I mean, this isn't a Pecorino Romano, but I'm thinking like, Pecorino Toscano, Papato, um, truffle Pecorino. Exactly. So they will take some of those other Pecorinos that fall outside of the Lazio region and they will age them less as well. So they'll have, I always kind of, it makes me think of Gouda. They'll have those creamier versions that are softer than 100% you could have with a table cheese on some bread and honey. Yeah, I feel like that whole, I mean, let's, if we really break down and I never really gave this a lot of thought. Pecorino is basically means sheep's milk, right? Of, of sheep's sheep. Milk cheese? Mm-hmm. Of, of yeah. sheep. Because that Pecorino de Pienza that we're talking about, which is a much younger, much softer, definitely a table-eating cheese, exactly. I almost feel like it has nothing to do with Pecorino Romano. And while we're talking like about Pecorino, class. we could also talk about Ricotta Salata. Is mm. that a Pecorino too? Nope, but it is a pressed, salted ricotta basically yeah Ooh, i okay, love good. ricotta salata yeah, that's a nice that's that's a nice item yeah. well this has been amazing andrea i know i feel like i have but like okay i can i go back a little bit please how did you start cooking like you Oof. said where you're from you said you went to culinary school but like 
Do you Italian have, grandparents? Yeah. Do, is it like Italian grandparents and you grew up like in the kitchen? It, it, it kind of is. But like I was saying, it's kind of interesting just being, I guess, the, the two side by side. I had an Italian grandfather and then my family is Southern. So, you know, growing up in the South, my mom just naturally cooking was her love language, you know. So and I also grew up in what I would call the uh, Food Network era. So the Emerald Lagasse. Yes. The, the growth of that excitement when you're a kid screaming bam and using all these different seasonings. So those moments of spending time around your family in the kitchen, cooking things, I think that slowly started it. And then naturally my first job in high school was in a restaurant, a small local restaurant. And that started to entice the idea. And I never found a full connection to it education to natural schooling you know I, yeah. I never found the love and the passion and then I went to culinary school and it was just easy you know every really class like everything yeah I just everything connected it just the intuition of cooking seemed to come a little natural still of course takes a lot of effort and uh, a lot of dedication and learning of the craft to have that intuition but yeah, you know, all the things seem to come with some time easily I'm thinking about kind of the future of chefs and culinary school and the um, maybe what kind of the Food Network era has done to our industry and like, oh, I'm going to go to culinary school and be on the Food Network. Um, what advice would you give? And, you know, maybe for someone who's listening who, you know, I feel the same way. Education wasn't really for me, uh, but food was. So, how you know, what's your advice to them? That's a good question. And it's a question I've thought about a lot. And this next generation, and I'm mm -hmm. uniquely in between these unique generations where I can relate to the younger, but I've also been a part of the older, this, the kitchens. Like that, John's generation? <laughs> I, mean, I didn't say that. <laughs> the kitchens that uh, had a little more of a black and white, a little more screaming, a little more straightforward. Either you do it this way or it's the highway. And yeah. this next generation, it's a little more teaching, a little more showing, a little more understanding of the gray between the black and the white. But the tip or the piece of advice I would give is to realize that nothing happens overnight. Um, lots of cooks these days when they get out of culinary school, I don't know if it's what they're being taught in culinary school, but it, they think they're going to be a chef tomorrow. And that being dedicated to that garmage station or what we'd call an anti-freda station for a year is not a bad thing. You're going to still be learning a year later. Trust me. You're still going to have things you can work on, still going to have things you can clean, things you can do right, things you can learn while working that station. And don't always be so obsessed with the next step or the next station and looking for the next restaurant. I think uh, what Frosca has actually done really well is trying to keep people for a long time and that, I don't know if it's the American workforce, but like staying at a place of any type is actually an awesome thing. And you'll grow so much the longer you stay in some place for a long time. And it's not always a bad thing to be in a restaurant for five to 10 years. You know, Talk to us about the Frasco experience, because I'm embarrassed to say I've never eaten there. I've stood, I actually, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Colorado, I didn't get a chance to eat there, but I was walking down Pearl Street, Andrea, at about five o'clock at night, mm -hmm. maybe a little bit later. The sky was lit up like this beautiful Colorado. They, they get these sunsets that are spectacular. It was like beautiful red skies as the sun was setting over the mountains. And I walked by Frasca and I actually saw Bobby Stuckey in there talking to the team before service. Uh, Ian, you were probably right there with him. And I was like, oh, look how beautiful and charming this restaurant is. Tell us, what is it like to dine at Frasca? What are some of the are there signature dishes? You mentioned that it's the cuisine of Friuli, right? I mean, yeah. talk to us about the food and the and experience if one goes to eat there. Yeah, and I would say starting from the beginning, if you've been a guest that's eaten there for the past 19 years, you, you will have noticed this, but it's a restaurant group and a restaurant in specific itself that it never sleeps on its laurels, never is um, okay with what it was, always looking to be what it wants to be for the future, driving uh, influence around the industry. Um, but one thing that always jumps out to me is comfort. So, you know, if you go to Frosco, you're going to walk in the front door, you're always going to be greeted by someone with a smile 
If you have a jacket, we're always going to take that jacket from you, at least offer to, you know, everything we build is about warmth and connection, let alone, um, Purely Venezia Julia and the inspiration behind the food. The, the front of the house is so warm. That's why they have won every award they've won. That's why they won the Michelin Service Award because we greet you with a smile throughout the evening. We don't rush you. We want you to be comfortable. I can easily say that it is probably the most comfortable restaurant seats I've ever sat in. And that comes with uh, probably a loss to how many people can seat at each table. You know, all those things they understand, but they take them in a very thoughtful response of like, we want you to be warm, comfortable. The music's just right. You know, the wallpapers is unique. Obviously, the wine list is top of the world. You know, and then when you start your way into the kitchen, you know, it's it's evolved so many times. We had this. Uh, lots of tours come into the kitchen because it is a very beautiful uh, kitchen that you can show to a lot of people. A lot of work has gone into keeping it clean as well. But as you venture into this kind of alleyway into the kitchen to your left is what we call the polishing room. It's where everyone in the front of the house ends up starting out. But that actually was Frosca's original kitchen. So it's very tiny, <laughs> very small. Used to, we have employees that have worked at Frosca since pretty much the opening, and they talk about how interesting it was expoing out of that area and working out of that small kitchen. Now we have uh, the most luxurious kitchen I've been afforded to work in. Uh, Murad was also very nice, but this has really been organized in multiple layers and processes to be worked in really clean and efficiently. And it kind of shoots down down towards the dish area. And it, the pastry team has an entire section. The anti-freda has their whole section. And then it goes on to the line where you have your anti-caldo, your primi, your, your contorni, and your secondi. And then we have a few different styles of dining. We have a quattro piatti, which is kind of like a four-course tasting that you choose within your own section there. It has a few options within each area. And then there will, of course, be some luxurious ingredients that you could supplement up on there. And then we have our Friolano tasting experience, as we call it. And that's a seven to nine course can go up and down within there, uh, really hyper-focused into Friuli. And then we have our third experience, which is kind of what we've dubbed the chef's table experience. But you actually, two to four people, you book a table within the kitchen. The chefs run almost every single course. We talk about it. You get to watch the action. You know, busy night, you get to hear us calling for sets and holding our fingers up and kind of being a part of the service for the night, which has also been really exciting. And that one is even, even more hyper-focused, really going, taking inspiration from the book, all of those types of things and reinterpreting it having fun with some of these uh, classic dishes. Wow. Incredible. And I think Andrea, while you were talking was uh, on Expedia looking for plane mm -hmm. tickets to, to Denver. <laughs> Sending an email trying to make that reservation. And if I could add one thing that's really unique about Frosca and really uh, Venezia Julia in, in particular is, and when people come to, to the restaurant in general, they may be expecting something different, which is most Italian restaurants, a lot more tomato sauce based, a lot more Southern Italy. We're a lot more of the border of, you know, Slovenia, Hungary, Croatia. So we have a lot more of that cold climate, a lot more of the polenta, rice, you know, celery root and potatoes and different types of cheeses that people may not have experienced. Sounds I have so, so many questions that we don't have enough time, but I know. Is there like a signature dish? There is. So there is one dish that even at the chef's table experience, we make everyone half back there, but it's called a frico caldo. Frico can be made in tons of different ways. Caldo just meaning closed. Ours is pan fried in a cast iron. It's Yukon potatoes, Idaho potatoes with a Matazio cheese, very unique cheese that comes from the Karnak Alps there. Little onion, again, pan fried, topped with a little parsley vinaigrette. Wow. The, the yeah. questions I had that I, I don't, and Andrew, you tell me if we have enough time. Yeah. There's one, being in Colorado, it's very different than being in yeah. a restaurant I in New York City question, or Los John. Angeles or San Francisco, where there's a very long history of either Italian or European heritage, where obtaining the ingredients that you're using in a, in a, a European restaurant, it's never easy, but it's less, far less challenging than I think than being in Colorado. Has how have you found it to get the type of ingredients that you want? Because I imagine that things have to be flown in from around the world or flown in from you know other parts of the United States. Hundred percent. You know, luckily 
I'm sure 19 years ago, they had quite a lot of trouble. I think Denver, Boulder, and this small community has really cherished Italian food for a long time. So some of the best restaurants around the area have been Italian. So there are amazing Italian importers, cheese importers. So we do sometimes do, though, have to get our cheese over a week out and get it straight shipped in from Italy. And sometimes that coincides with Italian holidays and all those unique things. So I would say just like most restaurants, but yeah, procurement of goods as the winter comes can be more difficult, of course. Mm -hmm. And I also, one other question is about staffing, because that's the biggest challenge for restaurants around the country in the last few years, particularly during COVID. But I also think that being in Boulder, Colorado is a place that is so desirable to live. It offers a lot to so many people as far as a lifestyle that I would think that people would be knocking at the door to work in the kitchen or front of the house in Boulder. Is that the case? I think just like any restaurant, they go, we go through waves. Um, obviously, the addition of Michelin, giving people, someone like me when I was younger who wanted to find a place where I could experience those types of kitchens, I had to move to the coasts or a Chicago type of place. And now you can look at a place like Boulder can entice a whole different type of people. Our, our cooks bike in the summers. They go hiking all the time. They go skiing together in the mornings and get to work on time. You know, they we really enforce the the dual life that like cooking can't be everything, you know, and you, your life does have to have other things in it that can give you joy and excitement. So you're not just revolving around the stress of work and all of those things. So luckily right now, again, we have been fully staffed. The Michelin star of course helps with that. And then Frost hospitality group as a whole, the whole house hospitality. I mean, I can't talk enough about that here. You can give a livable wage to back of house employees that could actually entice them to want to stay for a long period of time. Whereas in my beginning career, there was nothing that really enticed you to stay for those long periods of time because the value of money could only go up 50 cents, $1, 25 cents here and there. You know, the tip structure can really affect how much money you're making. It's really amazing. And we've seen huge strides in that. Is cooking part of your home life as well? I guess I <laughs> I think I speak for probably most cooks, but it'd be, I always laugh when I tell my dad this, but my dad's a dentist and I doubt what he wants to do when he comes home is uh, clean people's teeth. But um, I do love cooking. It has to give me, it has to probably coincide with a weekend. You know, yes. I'm lucky. My wife is an amazing cook and loves cooking and she has the drive when she gets home to do that. So it's a lot of me, uh, I guess, nitpicking her, sure. <laughs> telling her, do this, do that, flip this. But yeah. What are the five staples that have to be in your kitchen at all times? I mean, salt is a uh, obvious, but sometimes you go to people's houses and they don't have the proper salts, but a good kosher salt diamond mm -hmm. crystal, you know, always in the house, um, becoming against seed oils. So I would say lots of olive oils, you know, good oils that are healthy for you. Um, I love sneaking nutritional yeast in things. Me um, too. So it's, that's a secret flavor bomb that I like to quiz people if they know it's in there. I don't think we've ever um, had that one. I love nutritional yeast. It's a super good way to make vegan food or even sure. vegetarian food more, you know. It gives you that nuttiness it. almost like a Parmesan or a, it does. a it cheesy, does. cheddar-y, yeah. It's my, it's my popcorn go-to. Nice. 100%. Um, I would say, hmm, that's a good one, soy sauce. All mine are going to be salt probably, but my wife is uh, half Japanese. Her family's Japanese, so we cook tons of rice, soy sauce, all of that kinds of stuff. And then I would say the staples, onions. Okay. You know, yeah. I, I know mine, are, mine sound boring, but I would literally say salt, onions, good oil, nutritional yeast, soy sauce. Outside of that, I, it's normal I groceries. I call those foundational core items. That's that's I, I always love to have onions in my house. I always love to have lemons and all right. the things you lemons mentioned. Lemons as well, 100%. Yeah. What is it? Salt, acid, fat? 
Yeah, I, exactly. The restaurant Eugene, he always said FASA, fat, acid, salt, and aromatics. I'll yeah. never forget that. FASA. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ian Palazzola, joining us from Frasca Restaurant in Boulder, Colorado. This has been so fun. Andrea, you know, we just opened a chef's warehouse location in Denver, Colorado, covering the entire state of Colorado. So now we have a real good excuse to come visit you. Um, I'm sure I'll be out there in a few weeks to talk to the team and present products to some of the restaurants in the area. And for sure, you'll be on my list. And this has been just a great time talking about Pecorino Romano and just talking about Colorado and, and food in general. I cannot wait to eat at Frasca Restaurant. Congratulations on that Michelin star. It's like I said earlier, wherever Ian goes, the Michelin inspectors follow him, I guess. You're going to have so I many chefs so. reaching out to you soon. Come yeah. work for yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ian. Thanks. Thank you all. It's been a great, great conversation. Take care. Hey, Andrea. John. How are you? Wonderful. We have a really special guest here today. We have a legendary cheesemaking producer with us today, which is so exciting. It's not often that we have a guest where the name and his family name is synonymous with the finest pecorino cheese, pecorino romano in the world. Absolutely. Usually we have like a representative you know, of the brand, but we have Pierre Luigi from Fulvi Pecorino here today. Pierre Luigi Sini from Sini Fulvi. Sini Fulvi. To, great to have you, Pierre Luigi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, John. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's a, a wonderful opportunity for me. So, really, thank you. Yeah, we are excited. We we love pecorino cheese. We love talking about pecorino. Talk to us about Sini Fulvi. You're the Sini. Who's the Fulvi? So we have to go back a little bit in time because I'm actually the third generation right now. So it started with my grandfather. He was Giuseppe C in his name. He was a farmer and eventually started to make a little bit of cheese like, you know, right next to the farm. And then when my dad uh, graduated from high school, he joined uh, basically the family company, if you can call it, that was still like in the farming business mainly and they started making a little bit more cheese. And then with his brother as well, they started working together. And eventually my father... He was the main driver to uh, to you know to basically acquire the Fulvi uh, name, brand, and company and plant in 1972. So the Fulvi family was in the in the town of Viterbo, which is about two hours north of Rome, uh, and they started making cheese in the 1930s. And then they were one of the first few exporters of Pecorino Romano in the U.S. with the Italian immigration in the 1950s, when cheese was actually still exported, like you know, by boat in those wooden crates. So it was a uh, really the beginning of the Pecorino Romano history in the U.S. And uh, so basically my my dad, you know, had the idea of like, you know, keeping the two names. Uh, the Fulvi name was still very, very, you know, linked to strongly to the Pecorino Romano, while the Cine name was uh, the other cheese, which we called table cheese, the cachotas, which my family was making before. So they combined the two names, the two families, and then it became Cine Fulvi officially in 1972. And then eventually established Cine Fulvi USA in 1991 when I personally moved to New York and uh, and the rest is more recent history. So you moved to New York and, you know, kind of, I guess, what what happened? Did you, I know you linked up with uh, Forever Cheese and kind of, is that how it started getting sold in New York City or? Uh, somehow, I mean, you know, the, the, the exportation of the Fulvi Begurian Romano was always ongoing for those many years. But the, the thing was that it was mainly, mainly, it was really mostly sold in the Italian, Italo-American markets, let's say. So it was really strongly linked to the Italian immigration, to the Italians, to Italo-Americans. And most people, you know, outside of those markets, they didn't even know actually Begorino was even made from sheep milk. They didn't even know a lot of things about Italian cheeses because the education at the time, it wasn't as big. I mean, it was still talking about the time when there was no internet and now, you know, people didn't travel as much. So gather certain type of information was mainly related to importers, some distributors, but, you know, so Italian cheese or Italian stores and so on. Very cool. So I think that Pecorino just in America, especially in the last few years has exploded even more. 
And the reason I say that is I think of things like, you know, things that you grew up on, Pierre Luigi, like cacio e pepe, you know, pasta. I, I don't think that was on menus in the United States if you go back 10, 15 years, maybe here and there. Mm-hmm. But I think today it's become such a hot dish. Absolutely. I think all of the Roman pastas, whether it's a matricano or carbonara, um, you know, we've got Roscioli restaurant that mm-hmm. just opened in New York now. I think all of those cheeses are really having like a special time that they're very popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's even being served like you're seeing it now. I don't know if, you know, Pierre Luigi. The pasta is being served in the wheel. You know, you're having this like theatrical kind of experience when you go out to eat that I don't really remember um, as much, you know, when I was younger going out to eat that maybe in the last five to seven years. Are, are you noticing that too? Or has Sini Fulvi noticed? Yes, yeah, very true. And actually it happened almost parallelly even in Italy more. I think as, as things start to evolve in the U.S., in other parts of Italy, but, you know, of course, you know, certain pecorinos, certain dishes are more linked to certain regions. In this case, more like the central and southern part of Italy. But we've seen even like a rediscovery of a lot of these dishes, even in places like, you know, Milan or Torino, anywhere in Italy. And in the U.S., it has been really, honestly, a true explosion in the last few years, especially. I think COVID uh, didn't help a lot of things, but in this case, it helped a lot of people, like, you know, stay home. And uh, cook a little bit more, look at recipe books, look at all kinds of uh, dishes, making fresh pasta. So, you know, the hard cheese became, uh, you know, a very good, uh, you know, important part of all this. But yeah, I mean, those, those pastas were, have been around forever. And it's the two, I mean, we, 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 I grew up with those two, but now they are really more known. And people understand that, you know, to really make a very good cachapeve, madrishana. Uh, carbonara. I also want to mention the Grisha, which is the carbonara the without the guanciale. Sure. Mm. So that's another, you know, so basically like we would like in the Four Sisters. The Roman and, classics. Uh, yeah. And Fulvi is honestly the just the one perfect marriage because to really make what you consider the perfect cream in those sauces, you just need a pecorino that has the essence of the territory, that has the right robust flavor, that makes you like have the little creaminess like you know you can't have from any other pecorinos and right now Fulvi has been just a wonderful pairing for so many uh, chefs and tons of people at home which is we're very proud of because uh, that's really what we you know we, we worked on for many many years let's talk about the different types of pecorino right because we're talking right now specifically about Sini Fulvi Pecorino Romano that's a hundred percent sheep's milk and what are Correct. some of the other types of pecorino cheese? Because there's pe- pecorino, pecorino from Tuscano, Tuscany yeah. and Pienza, totally different product. Yeah, so pecorino, it's uh, the genetic world in Italian for cheese made from sheep's milk. But as many things in the food industry, especially that have to do a lot with nature, every small detail makes a big difference. The territory, the weather, the milk, the history. So they're all similar in a way because you can just put them in the same, let's say, pecorino family. But then when you go and try each one of them and, you know, trying to understand the history, they all bring different things to the table. They can be sharp, they can be mild, they can be soft, they can be harder. And they still represent the territory in a very unique way. That's the interesting thing about, like, you know, really understanding the history of the territory and the people and why the different two. And then once you get to know them, you know, every small detail, again, makes a really big difference. So you can tell that they really are different. As different as time they can be, even though they are still grouping in a kind of one big family. So, oh, sorry. I was going to say, how many different types of pecorino romano does Cine Fulvi make? So we make only pecorino romano Fulvi, what we call Fulvi. Basically, it's only one. It's only one production. It's we made the same way artisanal that we made, like, you know, since uh, basically it goes back to you know, Fulvi in the 1950s, by my dad's family since 1972. And it's only one. We make one production. It's all made the same way. Same thing for the Italian market, for the U.S. market. It's just one thing has always been the way. So we're very proud of the two because, you know, we are really one of the very, very few companies left in Lazio uh, to not only make Pecorino Romano de Lazio, which is, you know, the one that is certified to be made in Lazio, can it be only aged in Lazio. It can only be made with milk produced in Lazio. So this is like, you know, one particular certification that we'll be able to obtain from the, from the government about, you know, 10 years ago to try to differentiate ourselves from the Sardinian Pecorino Romano. Because, you know, for many years, they both had the same name officially, and even in Sardinia, it's still called Pecorino Romano DOP, but it was a lot, was planning to do, it was very hard for us, you know, to really, you know, educate consumers when actually the label 
and officially everything like you know you know gave it the same name so we we were able to obtain this by you know working a lot with the government and now we have this certification too which we are the only one of the three four companies left in lots to use we are the the largest but we still have you know huge like you know connection to the territory we still have farmer that have been with us for like you know 24 years i was in rome the other week and i was uh at our plant and you know this old man showed up it's like oh wow i haven't seen you since you were a kid you know we've been <laughs> giving milk to your family for like 40 years and it's still you know one of the farmers near us and they have like you know a couple hundred sheep and they still do the same thing and we still be able to make cheese from uh, people that we milk from people like this so that's very 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 you know very very exciting that, for us to yeah. make that, this legacy that's an amazing tradition and I'm wondering, are, are there different ages or is everything Yeah, I was going to ask like the quality for is... X amount of months? So Pegorino Romano DOP by alone is to be aged at least five months. We've been aging full before always, forever, for at least uh, 10 months. So our ideal aging is about 10, 12 months. It's what we feel the cheese has, you know, the right uh, combination of texture and flavor. Uh, Sardinia and Pegorino Romano is traditionally being more consumed more industrial. So it's always been, you know, lower in price. And uh, not as good in flavor too, just because there's always been like an industrial production based like, you know, for ingredients used, but people they use like, you know, commercial grade, anything going to ingredients too. We always wanted to be different. And not only because, you know, the cheese is made in a different way, in a different place with different milk, but also because, you know, we, we have this attention to details as, you know, we still add and salt to the cheese, which most people in Sardinia haven't done in really many, many years. They basically like, you know, bathe the cheese in like, you know, in salt and water. For a few days and then you're done. We still hand sold the cheese like in a few times in the first three months of life of cheese, which is really, really, you know, very damn consuming, a lot of labor. We need to just basically like just get the cheese like, you know, by hand and then, you know, roll it and get the salt and then do it again in a few weeks. So, and we still also age the cheese in the original caves of the plant. This plant was built uh, by the Fulvi family to specifically be like, you know, the biggest producer of Pigurin Romani in those years. And we have uh, basically like, you know, a certain number of caves underground. They cover almost the entire, you know, surface of the plant. And we still bring the cheese uh, downstairs. We go, you know, and they, we go to the cantina, but, you know, it's probably the gives the best <laughs> translation in English. It goes down there a few days after it's made. And then, you know, everything else happens, you know, down there. And up until like, you know, it's at least 10, 12 months where we, when we have to, you know, do the final step, which is, you know, selecting it and then eventually, you know, coding, packing, whatever we need to do, we will sell it. So it's a very, very different process than, uh, than most pecorinos in Sardinia. Very different. So it's the milk, it's the aging, it's the salting, it's the, uh, you know, caves that make the Fulvi pecorinos far superior than any of the kind of the counterparts. Are there any other, like, qualities that kind of stand out for Fulvi pecorino? Yeah, you name most of them. I, mean, I would never say superior in my opinion, just because, you know, to me, it's still the most important thing is that it's unique. Then, you know, I like how the people do judge, you know, what they like better too. But, you know, for us, you know, we want to really make sure that we point out how unique it is. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's the territory, is the, um, definitely the milk, because, you know, the milk in Lazio is very, very different than from Sardinia. Not only we have different type of sheep, but it just, you know, every little thing makes a difference in nature, you know, the weather and the water and the way the people are, everything. Sounds like a good true art, John. Yeah. Like versus just like, you know, kind of I'm going to make this cheese as quickly as possible so we can sell it as quickly as possible and make as much money. It's this. This is like, you know, something that there's history and there's a formula and they're not going to, you know, kind of waver because it's so important to like the history of the cheese and the and the region and yeah, the farmers. So, it sounds like nothing's changed in yeah. 70 That's plus cool. years, 80 years. Um, Pierre Luigi, you mentioned, and you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the like classic Roman pastas. Mm-hmm. What you know, and I always think of pecorino romano as a grating cheese, yep. which is great in cooking. Is uh, what are some other uses? Is it ever used as a table cheese for eating, or is it is that not something? That's a great point, John. It's actually one of the things I've always been you know pushing in educating you know consumers for uh, my entire life. Uh, Fulvi is so different because, you know, also we have a very different text than most Pecorino Romanos. The cheese is never as dry because of the butterfly content, but also the way we actually age it. So even if we were to age it for two years, which we've done and we have tried, the cheese still maintains a very good softer texture you would think a cheese, you know, the hardness to have. So it's actually a great table cheese. If you love a cheese that's robust, that's piquant, that is sharp, 
I mean, I was with some friends, you know, last week in Roma, bro. Of course, you know, I was, you know, to bring cheese. So they you carry you know, it with you in your bag yeah, all the time. Yeah, one of my friends, he was just coming from work, and so this chunk of pepperoni is like, you know, I'm gonna just eat pecorino tonight. That's gonna be my dinner. <laughs> so it's basically like, you know, a chunk of pecorino, just like you know, a little wine, a little piece of cheese, and if you love herbal cheese, great cheese for eating. It shreds really well. Uh, it's very important also, you know, remind people that you know it cheese like full It's good to actually uh, not slice it, but like you want to chisel the cheese to get the perfect texture. So, you know, like, you know, same thing with Parmesan. If you slice the cheese, you won't get the same texture. And when you eat it, it won't really actually taste the same. I think it's so important. Whether you're, we have, a, you know, obviously our, the most of our listeners to this podcast are kitchen professionals mm-hmm. and chefs and people who work in the industry. It's so important whether you are a chef or whether you're just a home cook when you're out shopping for Pecorino Romano that you ask for the Fulvi brand. Absolutely. Ask for Sini Fulvi. I know, you know, I think of Italy and New York where, you know, Tess the Cheese Buyer is mm-hmm. such a huge fan of Sini Fulvi that when you go to the store, ask for that brand. Don't settle for just the regular cheese. And yeah. same at Chef's Warehouse. If you're buying, ask for the Fulvi brand because it does make a huge difference and it is so different from anything else that we have. One other question I have, I'll, and then I'll be quiet, is <laughs> what is the best for a table, Pecorino Romano, Sini Fulvi, what's the best wine to pair with it Ooh. as a table cheese? Honestly, I always say I'm actually a big, uh, I'm a huge uh, wine lover. Mm-hmm. I always say when the cheese is good and when the wine is good, almost anything goes. Love it. Then the rest, I think, is all about details and the way you are and what you like. Honestly, because you know, if the two ingredients are really good, I mean, a great wine goes with anything. I and love it. A great it. piece of cheese almost just goes with any wine. Of course, I mean, ideally, if you want to have like, you know, something more like, you know, technical pairing, uh, you want to, you know, you want to definitely use something that is red yeah. and mm-hmm. more like on the medium full body. But even if you, even if you pick like, you know, an interesting, like, you know, aromatic, like white wine, actually, you'll be surprised. It goes well, too. I've had people love Pecorino with beer. Yeah. I'm not Ooh. a huge beer fan, but I mean, you know, I've seen people like, you know, drink with it too and they love it. But ideally, I mean, ideally, in general, people will say like in a medium to full body red wines, it would be the Brunellos of the world, you know, from Italy, the Amarone, uh, the Barolos. But there is a lot of, I mean, even like, you know, nice regular Sangiovese from Tuscany doesn't have to be a very aged wine, you know, go well too. But honestly, if the wine is great, just drink it with anything. I love getting it. hungry, John. I know. I need a big glass of red and a big chunk of cheese and a thing of bread and I'll be happy. Maybe you can take me to Roscioli <laughs> for lunch yeah, now that I'm thinking that. about it. Well, this has been amazing. I cannot, you know, thank you enough for your time, your partnership with Forever Cheese and with Chef's Warehouse. If you're a chef and you're looking for the full V Pecorino, please check out chefswarehouse.com and try this cheese. It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Pierre Luigi. Such a treat to have you on. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah. It really is my pleasure. And I want to thank you, every, you know, everybody at Chef's Warehouse, every customer out there, everybody that supported us over the years, too. It really means a lot to us. So we continue to do, you know, to do the best we can to bring you the best possible Vigorino Fulvi, and uh, we're proud of being uh, in the U.S. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products we discussed on today's episode at chefswarehouse.com or at your favorite specialty retailer.